What I'd like you to do is open that Bible to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. It's been our privilege to study the gospel of John and to go through that. But as you're turning to John chapter 5, James Montgomery Boyce asked this question. He asked, what do you think of Jesus Christ? Who is he? Boyce said, this is the most important question you or anyone else will ever have to face. He said, it is inescapable. You will have to answer it sooner or later. In this world or in the world to come, your eternal destiny depends on your answer to that question. And the question was, what do you think of Jesus Christ and who is he? Who is Jesus Christ? That's been our question as we've been walking through the Gospel of John. The Holy Spirit already declared in chapter 1 that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. The disciples as well in chapter 1 declared that he is God, namely John the Apostle. John the Baptist declared also in chapter 1 that he is the Lamb of God that He is the Messiah, that He is the Savior. When we got to John chapter 2, we saw His authority over the temple, and in the temple was a declaration that He is divine. His miracles throughout these opening chapters are a declaration that God has come in the person of Christ in the flesh. Now, as we come to John chapter 5, As far as as I've been studying this, we come to one of the most important miracles that Jesus ever did. I think it's one of the greatest miracles that he ever performed at the healing at the pool on the Sabbath to the man. Not so much because it was a, a miracle that he had not done before. Oh, he did many miracles but because of the truthfulness of this miracle and what ensued after the miracle. It's a watershed issue. In fact, it was his healing on and in John 5, on the Sabbath, that triggered the hostility between Jesus Christ and the Jewish leaders. Now last week when we looked at the healing that took place, we looked at three aspects of that healing. The incredible mercy of Christ. Then we looked at the malice, the incredible malice of the Jews. Remember that? We looked at the mercy of Christ. Just to remind yourself, Jesus went up to Jerusalem in 5.1. There was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethsaida, which has five roofed colonnades, and these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred. And while I am going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. He performed a miracle. For some particular reason, in the sovereignty of God, though verse 3 says, these lay a multitude of invalids. 
he picked out this one particular man. The man had been an invalid for 38 years of his life. Nearly four decades had gone by and this man was laid at that pool because you remember his hope was that in the stirring of these waters that one would step down into the pool and the first one who stepped down into the pool would be healed and he couldn't get down to the pool fast enough. And we displayed there in that first point the incredible mercy of Christ. Christ went on to tell that man, get up, take up your bed or take up your mat. When you think of a mat, a bed, it's just a little roll-up mat that he was carrying that he would lay on and He did so. Christ gave him one command, and at his command, the man walked, which we noted was not only a miracle to heal the man who had been an invalid for 38 years, but that that man would be able to rise and walk even though his muscles were atrophied for 38 years. And the focus is not on the man. The focus is on the mercy of Christ. And we said everything looked good up until that point, until verse 9 adds this. Now that was the Sabbath. And the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is Sabbath, or Sabbath it is, and they chastised him. Did you notice that in verse 10? They said, it is Sabbath, it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. In other words, he had broken one of the laws. He picked up his bed, his mat, on the Sabbath and walked and thus violated the Sabbath day. Now, you know that We pointed that out as the malice of the Jews. They weren't excited for the guy that had been healed. They were mad that that particular guy who had been an invalid for 38 years now walked on the day and carried his mat and thus broke the law. Now, remember I said last week, and you could listen to that if you weren't here, it was biblical to keep the Sabbath. God was the one in the Old Testament all over, particularly Exodus 20 and many other places, where he established the Sabbath day. It was to be a rest, a day of rest for God's people. But remember, the Jewish leaders developed what they called the Mishnah. And in the Mishnah, they came up with 39 laws on what that meant. And I went into that last week. The last of those laws was this one, that no one was allowed to move a possession from one domain to another. And that's exactly what this guy did. And they wanted to know who did it. And he didn't know who did it. And that's all he could report to them in verse 13, because Jesus had withdrawn into the crowd. And then Jesus found the man later at the temple, you remember? And we look thirdly at the incredible misstep of the man... It says there that the man, in verse 15, after Christ found him in the temple, verse 14, see you are well, sin no more, he said, that nothing worse may happen to you. And then the man, verse 15, the misstep of the man, went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And we noted last week that at not one place does it say that this particular man who was healed ever came to faith. At any point, in fact, We'll find out in a few months here when we get to John chapter 9 that he's an utter contrast with a man who was born blind and came and received his sight but also came to saving face to the point where he was willing to be excommunicated out of the temple. This particular man, oh no, Jesus finds him. He tells him, fascinating, last week, to sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And the man goes straight out in verse 15 and tells the Jews. He ratted out the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, beloved, what I'm saying to us as we follow in the text, I believe sovereignly our Lord performed this miracle to provoke the confrontation that now ensues to declare who he was. In other words, the miracle is a miracle. But he did the miracle as he did in other places on the Sabbath and it led to the confrontation that we will now find in the Word of God. Would you follow along? And I'd like to read from 16 to 24 this morning. It says after 15, this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees his father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these he will show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives each them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. The text here provides a wonderful occasion for our Lord to assert his oneness and his authority with the Father. It is a declaration of equality. This text is Christ's own statement regarding his deity. He provides us with one of the richest Christologies in the entire New Testament, and the words are his. The teaching comes from his own lips. Now, as we begin just to set this text up, look at verse 17. It says there, and just look at the phrase, the opening phrase, but Jesus answered them. Stop just for a second. He's answering them. And that would be, if you look back up in verse 10, so the Jews said to the man, he's answering the Jews. Now, we noted last week that that is a technical term, the Jews, for the Jewish authority. So now in verse 17, he answered them. It's an interesting Greek word. It's a Greek word that speaks of a legal term. In other words, he answered them. Our Lord is going to give his defense, if you will, to these Jewish leaders. And the language in biblical Greek was was captured in that of a court scene. Now, there's no question the key to the text is verse 18. Look at it again. It says... After a statement in 17, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father. And now this, making himself equal with God. There's the key phrase, making himself equal with God. Now, as you begin to look at the text, you ask the question, in what ways is Jesus Christ equal with God. 
Or in what ways is he equal with his father? And as we walk through this text, he's going to give us four bold declarations of his own equality with God in order that you may know him and believe in him. This is outstanding truth here today. I mean, it's almost, it's almost incredible that we can study this together. I just, my own heart is so joyful this week to work through this because it is the words of Christ. Obviously, it's the scripture. All of the scripture is inspired. But here's four bold declarations of the testimony of Jesus Christ and his own equality with God. It is his own testimony to his own identity. Now, that being said, we'll look later in 5. There will be further testimony from John and the disciples and so forth. But this is the testimony of Jesus Christ. And you cannot hear these words and say, this is just a good moral teacher. You can't hear these words and say, it's just a good uh, moral man. We need to grasp this section. We need to understand John chapter 5. It is the heart and the soul of the gospel. It is deep. It is rich. It is stretching to our minds. So if you feel a little bit like, wow, that's a lot of truth this morning. Well, welcome to the Trinity, okay? But we're not giving easy stuff here at Grace Church of the Valley, right? I don't mean that in a prideful way. I want to take you as deep as I can. Our goal here amongst our leadership, our elder, our pastors, our leaders, whether it's in this pulpit or in, your, in the children's ministry, is to drive you to the deep things of God that you might know joy, that you might be able to obey Him that you might be able to observe all the things that I commanded. And as far as I'm concerned, we have one of the greatest texts in all of the Scripture. So let's look at the first bold declaration. Is this, is that he is equal with God in essence. He is equal with God in essence. Look at it in verse 17. Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now. And then he says, I am working. Stop there just for a second. Do you notice that he didn't say our father is working? He didn't say the father is working. He attaches the essence of God to my father is working until now. In other words, if you're a Jewish leader and you heard that statement roll off his lips when he's speaking about Yahweh and he says, my father is working to a Jewish mind and to Jewish leadership, that is blasphemous. Now he says here, now remember in the context of the healing of the man at the pool, he says, my father is working, verse 17, until now. In other words, he's working this very day. Even at the pool. And it's really kind of a fascinating statement. Because we know that Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, says that on the seventh day, God, what? He rested. And so the question that you're posing here in the text is, does does God himself keep the Sabbath? Does God break his own law? And if God keeps the Sabbath and that he rested 
then this question could come out of the text. Then who's running the universe? If, if today's the day of rest then, and God's resting on that seventh day, then who's running the universe? Now, beloved, the, the religious Pharisees knew that God was sustaining the universe. They would tell you that there are works of providence that God would do. That there are works of mercy that God would do. That people have life on the seventh day. That people face death on the seventh day. That children are born on that day. And so Jesus just simply says here, I think we understand that, my Father is working. Jesus said actually He's continuously working. Jesus says, my father actually never stops working. When it says that God rested on the seventh day, beloved, it does not mean that he ceased from being active, okay? The Sabbath, according to Jesus in another text, was instituted for man's benefit, not God. God, if you will, instituted the Sabbath for man. And so Jesus said, if God continues to work on the Sabbath, and if my works are the works of God, then Jesus is saying, I am of the same essence of God, and I have the prerogative to do this work on the Sabbath day. In other words, if my father's working, I want to tell you too that I myself am working in what you just saw. Remember in another passage in the New Testament in Mark, Jesus said, I have authority over the Sabbath because I am, what? Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, he places his activity on the Sabbath day on the same level with that of his father. So Jesus, you get it? He says, he and I are working He is of one essence with the Father. Do you remember earlier in John, actually last year, when he said in the Word, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was what? With God. In other words, before the foundation of the world, the Word was with God. Pros, ton, theon. Jesus Christ was in a face-to-face relationship with God the Father before his birth. We looked at that. Not only was the word with God, but the word what? Was God. This is not just an extension of the Father. Certainly the distinction in the Trinity is in regard to function personality, but not essence. In other words, Jesus is here saying out of his own mouth, he is of the same essence as God the Father. He's working and I'm working. Both within the teaching of Scripture, are equal in the Godhead, and both are to be honored and to be worshipped. Now, when he said, my father is working and I am now working, the Jewish people knew exactly what he was stating. Look at verse 18 again. They say there, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And I just want to let you know, just from the text, did you notice that Jesus never corrected their statement? He never said, oh, hey, you you guys got it wrong. 
He, he never said, oh, I am sorry. Okay? He didn't say, did I offend you? But breaking the Sabbath was indeed serious. But making yourself equal with God was blasphemous to the Jews. And so he said, it says there in 18, they were trying to kill him. Do you see that in 18? And the reason I said that this is a watershed issue is you understand, beloved, that at the very outset of his public ministry, which is not so early, maybe it's a year and a half into it, man, he is being hunted down. Verse 16, it says, and this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. He was doing these things on the Sabbath, and now in 18, they were seeking all the more to kill him. Look over at John chapter 7, verse 1. Take a little trip here with me in John. You can't get away from the language, but in 7-1, here at the Feast of Booths, it says in 7-1, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. I mean, they were after him. Look over at John chapter 7 in verse 19. Jesus said there, Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you, in 719, seek to kill me? They are out for him. Look at 725. The people knew this. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? I mean, from the very beginning, they were seeking to put Christ to death. Look over at John chapter 8 in verse 37. You'll see it in essence there, where it says, I know you are the offspring of Abraham, yet, in 837, you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. This is the testimony of Scripture. It was unthinkable for a Jew to think that anyone would be comparable to God. In their minds, Jesus crossed a blasphemous boundary marker. He is worthy of death. So here's the first bold declaration, is he is equal with God in essence. But look back now at John chapter 5. Look what he goes on to say. Amazing. He said in verse 19 to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord. For, but only what he sees the Father doing, for whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. What a great statement. Jesus opens that there, and he'll say it three other times, I believe, when he says in verse 19, truly, truly, I say to you. Whenever you have that statement, truly, truly, it's just, it's an emphatic statement in the Greek language. In other words, listen up. This is like super important is what Christ is saying. So he's going to say in verse 19, I'm telling you the truth emphatically. I'm telling you the truth regarding my relationship with the Father. Truly, truly, I'm telling you the truth regarding my equality with God. So he makes the bold declaration that he's not only equal in essence, but secondly here, he's equal with God in action. He's equal with God in action. And beloved, here's the profound teaching of Scripture that though they share the same essence, they also share the same actions. In fact, look at it again in verse 19. It says there, 
Jesus said that the son can do nothing on his own accord. In other words, the son, Jesus, these are the words of Christ, can do nothing on his own initiative. There is not only a bold declaration of essence that in the same being they share that, though they have distinct roles, but here they're equal with God in action in that what the Father does, the Son does. That there's oneness within the Trinity. There's harmony in action. Now look at it again in verse 19. It says there that the Son can do nothing of his own accord. That is not an expression of the Lord's inability, but rather it is an expression of the utter unity of God the Father and God the Son in the Trinity. Beloved, our Lord Jesus Christ, in his actions, never took action independently. He would never, couldn't, assert his independence from God the Father, okay? He is co-eternal with the Father, but at the same time, he is subordinate to the Father. He never works against his Father's will. He only came to do his Father's will. He never works independently of the Father. You say, well, then what does he do? Well, look at the text again in verse 19. It says there, he only does, but only what he sees the Father doing. In other words, there's perfect unity of action with the Father and with the Son. And so any self-willed determination would be a denial of his sonship. In fact, look at the end of verse 19. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. In other words, Jesus... I mean, think about what he's saying. He does everything the Father does. It is impossible for the Son ever to act in an autonomous or independent way against the Father's will. So look back just for a second at the previous page on John 4, verse 34. Isn't this what he meant? When he said to them, Remember when they were asking for food? And he said in 434 of John, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's my food. I'm doing my father's will and he's given me work to do and I came to accomplish it. Look here in our text in John chapter 5 in verse 30 where Jesus said in a very similar phrase in 5.30, I can do nothing on my own. He says, as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. Here's why. Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That's what he came to do, the will of his father. Look down again, next chapter, John chapter 6 and. Verse 38, so clear here in 638 of John, Jesus said, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 
And so he came to do the will, the work of God. Look over at John chapter 8, a very clarifying sentence and statement by Jesus. It says in 829 that he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Always. John 14.31 says, but I do as the Father has commanded me. Listen, because of their oneness, the Son sees what the Father does and responds to every situation in his life as the Father would. Now, let me just clarify this for you. The father-son relationship in the scripture is not reciprocal. And and what I mean by that is that the scripture never asserts that the father does only what he sees the son doing. They have very distinct roles in the Godhead. Always when you see this kind of action, beloved, the father initiates, the father sins, sends S-E-N-D-S, the Father commands, and the Son responds, the Son obeys, and the Son does the Father's will. He receives His authority, whatever the Father does, the Son does. Now, the Son does what the Father does. You say, well, why? Look back at John chapter 5. It's a profound statement He does what the Father does, because watch this in verse 20. The Father, for the Father, loves the Son and shows Him all that He is doing. Stop there just for a second. The love of the Father, for the Son, is displayed in the disclosure of all that He does. Meaning this, that the Father discloses to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, all of his plans and all of his works with the purpose in mind that the son might reveal them to us. He keeps no secrets from the Lord. Certainly in times of his humanness, there was a restriction of the full use of the Lord's attributes. But in matters of divine disclosure to Christ, The Father holds nothing back. Do you remember when Paul said this in Colossians 1.19? That in Him, speaking in Christ, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In the person of Christ, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Him. Paul said in Colossians 2.9, in Him, in Christ, The fullness of God or the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. It's in Christ. Colossians 2, 3 says, In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom. And so this is why Jesus would say, I don't know if this one comes up on the screen. There it is. He says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. He said, But I have called you friends, For all that I've heard from my Father, I have made what? I've made it known to you. It's an amazing statement. Who can make that kind of statement? Only Jesus. Well, who is Jesus? Jesus is God. He says there, 
all that I've heard from my father, I'm now making it known to you. Do we have one more slide there on the next one? Is it in John 16? There it is. All that the father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now, let me just interpret that. All that the father has is mine, just from the previous verse. Then he says, therefore, I said that he, the Holy Spirit, in John 16, will take what is mine and he will declare it to you. Beloved, if you go back to Colossians, you don't need anything else but the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, whom the Holy Spirit makes that known. In other words, he's sufficient for all things. This is what the scripture says. And that's why it says in John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He, speaking of Christ, has made him known. What a wonderful statement. And then at this in John 14, 9, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen what? Has seen the Father. Let me see if I could pull this all in now. The implication in our Lord's healing at the pool on the Sabbath is that the Son did exactly what the Father would do. In other words, he's not only equal in essence with God, he's equal in action with God for what Christ does, the Father did, and the Father sends the command, if you will, to Christ. But there's a third bold declaration. Would you look at it? He's not only equal with God in essence and action, but thirdly, he's equal with God in power. Equal with God in power. Look at the text at the end of verse 20. Jesus says there, he said, greater works than these, he will show him or he will show him. In other words, so that you may marvel. So what's he talking about there? What do you mean the greater works? Greater than what? Greater than what works? Well, certainly the works we've seen. Let's just take it in the context. He's going to show you, verse 20, he will show him, God the Father will show him Christ. You say, well, what are those greater works? It's just the next verse is the greater works. You say, what are the greater works? Look at verse 21. For the Father raises the dead, and here's the key, and gives them life. Unbelievable statement. So also the Son gives life to whom he will. Verse 22, the father judges no one, but he's given all judgment to the, what? To the son. Greater works he will show you. What are those greater works? In other words, God the father raises the dead. He gives life to them. Certainly a Jewish person wouldn't dispute that. But John here, the apostle in Christ, state that the giving of life is not only the prerogative of God, it is now the prerogative and power of Jesus Christ. So God not only has the power to give life, 1 Kings 17, 2 Kings 4, 2 Kings 5, but now the text is saying that Jesus also has the power to give life. 
Deuteronomy 32:39 God says there is no god beside me I kill and I make alive that same power that God the Father Almighty has is now the power that's equally given in the person of Christ in fact look at it in verse 21 it says so also the son gives life to whom he will In other words, he gives spiritual life. He gives eternal life. Beloved, there can't be any greater power than that. He's going to show you greater works. Well, what's the greater works? He has the ability to take you who are dead in your trespasses and sins and extend to you eternal life. That is the ultimate display of power. He can not only kill, but he can make alive. And what God the Father can do now equal in essence action and power, Jesus Christ can do. The Father authorizes him to act, but his will is in complete unity with the Father. So there's distinctness and yet there's oneness in harmony. And he does that so that we would marvel. Okay? So he's equal with God in power that Jesus Christ is the one who can give eternal life. I mean... Just think, just for a second, it just dawned on me this week when I was studying. Jesus is in a conversation with the Jewish leaders, and I take that to be what it would be, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. And they have no idea who they're talking to. They're talking to Christ whom they're trying to kill, and I'm telling you, beloved, they're looking in the face of God. They're looking in the face of their own Creator. They're looking in the face of the one who has the power to give life and they're accusing him and hunting him down. The one that said, let there be light and there was light. And so here, here it is a display of the power of Jesus Christ that just as God the Father has that power to give life, Christ does, so also the Son. But watch this. This is mind-boggling. Look at verse 22. The Father judges no one, but He's given all judgment to the what? To the Son. Beloved, I think you would agree with me that judgment belongs to God. To judge someone is the prerogative of God alone. Fair? And we have earthly courts, earthly systems, but in an ultimate way, To judge is the prerogative of God alone. Beloved, this is a startling statement. Think about how that came off his lips. I'm not sure what your impression is of Christ. Somebody who's maybe just milk toast and somebody who's super nice and super condescending. All I know is it says here, Jesus said that the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment, what? To the Son. I mean, Genesis 18.25, remember that? When he was about ready to destroy the city, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous and the wicked, uh, or to put the righteous to death with the wicked. And then it says in Genesis 18.25, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? In other words, God is the judge. God is just. He will judge people. But now, beloved, God has entrusted all judgment to his son. That's power. There's no other way to look at this. 
He's equal with God in essence. He's equal with God in action. He's equal with God in power. God Almighty, if you will, invested to him the ability to give eternal life by believing in his son. And now he's invested into the son the ability to judge people. In fact, look down. We'll catch it next week in 527. He has given him, 527, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Wow. I think you well know that Acts, there the writer, said that he, Jesus Christ, was appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. Acts 10.42. You say, who can do that? Well, only God. Therefore, Jesus is God. He was appointed by God the Father to judge the living and the dead. Just what it says here. Remember in Acts 17, in verse 30 and 31, there the writer said that he is fixed today, speaking of the person of Christ, in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Do you understand, beloved? There will be a day of reckoning coming where everybody will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. So listen, he's equal in God and essence and action in power. Fourth and finally, here's the bold declaration. It's equal with God in honor. It's equal with God in honor. Here it says in 523 that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. That's a bold declaration. He's equal with God in honor. Christ, by divine decree, receives honor that only belongs to God. In other words, any words of praise to God the Father that ignore the Son are not honoring to God the Father. To reject the Son is to reject the Father who sent His Son. That that is why it's hard for me that some people say that Jesus never claimed to be God. That is absolutely foolish. Of course he did. Jesus says that he is to be worshipped the same way God is worshipped. He is to be praised and honored and trusted and worshipped the same way God the Father is. He's equal in essence, in action, in power, and now in honor. God has highly exalted him. Philippians, Paul said, and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should, what? Bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue shall, what? Confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Beloved, in unmistakable terms, he's claiming to be God here. He is not a rabbi only. He is not a prophet only. He is not a teacher. In fact, he is much more than that. And it leaves you just with a few options this morning, because this is about us, right? In the words of C.S. Lewis, he is either a liar, he is a lunatic, or he is what? Lord. I mean, let's be honest, if he's saying this stuff, as bold as it's coming off, and this is not the truth and it is the truth, then he's far from being a good teacher, far from being a moral teacher, he's a liar. And we know he's not a liar. I mean, if you just looked, who else would make this kind of statement? Nobody else would make this kind of statement and then back the statement up. 
Or you fall on your feet this morning, on your face this morning, and you confess that he's Lord. I love what C.S. Lewis said. He said, a man was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher, Lewis said. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else the devil of hell. And he said to his audience, to you, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else he's a madman or something else or worse. He said, you can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him, kill him as a demon. Or he said, you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. He said, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great moral teacher. He has not left that open to us. So true. You say, well, what must I do? What what do I do with the person of Christ? Look at the last verse in 24. Jesus, another emphatic, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has, what? Eternal life. What hope there is in the gospel. Whoever hears my word, which implies and includes obeying his word. Whoever believes him, God the Father who sent me, the one who believes that present tense has eternal life. Beloved, that is the gospel, is it not? If you put your faith in this one, who is equal in essence, equal in action, equal in power, equal in honor, you will have eternal life. In in fact, look at the promise there in 24. He does not come into that judgment, but he's passed from death to what? Life. Beloved, if you put your hope and confidence in Christ, if you're here this morning and you're not in Christ, if you put your hope and confidence in him and believe that the Father sent the Son, that the Son died on the cross for your sins, that on that third day God was gloriously raised, it says there profoundly in 24, you will not come into judgment. I mean, the truth is, if you either embrace Christ for who he is, or you are caught, I call it, in the crosshairs of judgment right now. In other words, you're not waiting to be judged. You're judged already. But listen, this is the hope of the gospel. Those who believe in Christ will have eternal life. You will never be condemned, Romans 8.1. And so listen, there's only one real choice to make. He's Lord. And I pray that you've bowed your knee to him. And so I'd ask you young people, have you bowed your knee to him? I didn't as a teenager. I've told you that many times. 14 years old, I had my fist in the face of God. See, Scott, were you like super rebellious? Well, you'd probably call me a nice guy. But man, I had my fist in God's face because I didn't want to bow to anybody. I didn't want to bow to anybody's lordship. I didn't want to move over from driving the car of my life and move over into the passenger seat. But listen, when you see who he is, when you understand his person, and when God exposed my sin, then I gladly came to Christ. One man said, if Jesus Christ shares the nature of God, and he does, and you think about this about your life, you may be a farmer, you may be newly married, You may be married in Christ for a little while. You may work at the schools. You may work at the courts. You may be a teacher. You may be a mom. 
You may be a high schooler. You may be in junior high. But listen, if Jesus Christ shares the nature of God, we're called to worship him without cessation. Obey him without hesitation. Love him without reservation. And serve him without interruption. I pray that that would be your heart this morning.